How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I hope all is well. It is a lovely autumnal morning here in Dublin. I hope it's nice wherever you're listening to. But you do get a sense, John, we are going into autumnal. We're going into the World Cup we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. Indeed. But just a quick update today. More tickets go on sale for Kilkenomics. We have some fantastic confirmations, some great guests on the comedian side. We have Dylan Moran, probably, brilliant, 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 probably brilliant. the best Irish comedian of his generation, is uh, signed up, ready to go, in the hot seat. So What's he have doing? a look. He's gonna he's gonna MC. He's gonna MC a whole thing. So the whole gig in, in Kilkenomics is the comedians are the MCs, and the economists are on panels, and the economists have to answer in the language that ordinary people understand, not the jargon, and the comedians are there to police them and good, to keep them on their toes. Good, good. And I can't think of a better master of ceremonies than Dylan Moran. So this is great. Dylan, you're very welcome to the gang. We also have brilliant British comedian Rosie Holt. Yeah. Have you seen her? She's just doing these great things on the Conservatives. Check her out on Google, Rosie Holt. She's also confirmed. We also have Hajung Chang, who is this amazing Korean development economist. And he has confirmed, he's got a great book, new book out called Edible Economics, which is food and economics with Ross Lewis. I think I might have told you about it a couple of weeks ago. Plus, for podcast listeners, Sasha Kabanovsky, who was on last week talking about Russia, a podcast that went down extremely yeah, well. Yeah, it was brilliant. Extremely was well. Really, really I've brilliant. I've persuaded him to come out of hiding and come to Kilkenomics and explain life in Russia, which this morning, John, after the Ukrainians blew up the bridge from Crimea yeah. to Russia, things are getting extremely, extremely... They're always volatile. Yeah. But you do get the sense it's just, of this, it's this gradual... All these... Like, it, was, it was Putin's birthday. And that was his birthday presents from the Ukrainians. Yeah. You know? No, but it's this, it's this constant chatter about nuclear war is really scary. And it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of, as they say, he's preparing the population for... And the Americans a, are taking it very seriously. Yeah. They're taking it extremely seriously. And actually what we're going to talk about in this podcast is not just geopolitics, geoeconomics, geostrategy. We're going to talk about the economics of global energy. But we're also going to conclude on what it actually implies for the world, not just in your 
daily, weekly, monthly bills, but actually something, a profound shift, let's say, in global relations. We're going to discuss that later on. But John, I want to tell you, I was in Cannes this week. Command, Max. I was in Cannes this week giving a speech, okay? (laughs) Never been there in my life. Never been there in my life. Extraordinary place. Extraordinary place, right? But one thing that struck me is... So it's full of very, very rich people. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Oh, it's a different world. It's, it's, it's a completely And what I want to world. talk about is the transfer of wealth from oil consumers, us, to oil producers in a couple of minutes, right? But there was a real sense. And again, it's very, very much, you can see a lot of that oil money is there. Okay, very, very bling. But I was walking down. So Cannes is this 19th century French resort town. Yeah, yeah. Imagine Bray with a few more frills, Okay. <laughs> A few more bumper cars. A few more bumper cars, all right? <laughs> but what is really amazing for me is the main drag, right, beside the beach, mm. is one after another of these awful shops. Bulgari. Do you know what Bulgari yeah, makes? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, Fendi, it's Bulgari, a different world. It's right? a different world. All these sort of things, right? So tacky, man, right? Yeah. It's so, so tacky. And it struck me, you know, about the banality of wealthy people, Right. If you imagine what money can give you, right? Money yeah. can give you extraordinary freedom, right? Freedom to do what you want, to explore, to change the world, to change your world, to do. I mean, that's the whole key is that money buys people freedom from the man. It allows you freedom from time horizons that you have to do things, freedom from work, all these sort of things, right? And can you imagine you're so rich, but yet your brain is so dull that you end up in a Fendi handbag shop. <laughs> not a shop. sweeping statement at no, all. But no, but really, like, that's what you do rather than... So you're you're corralled into these brands and that's what you think being rich is about. And there's a great British journalist called Janan Ganesh who writes in the FT yeah. every week. And he writes these extraordinary articles. Some of them are really, really brilliant. And he was writing about, you know, that basically he's talking about London and how the rich parts of London have been colonised by these incredibly dull, rich people. Yeah. And they'd all do the same thing. They go to the same restaurants, and they, they read the same reviews, and they go to the same everything. So there's, there's actually, rather than being expansive with your money, you actually become a complete dullard. But he was talking about a great TV show that I recommend anybody to watch if you have time, which is called Civilizations. It's kind of the history of the world, which was, I think, made by the BBC in the late 1960s. And the presenter was Kenneth Clark, a British historian, Right. And it's just basically about us, yeah. Human, yeah, yeah. human race. But Ganesh describes the final sound off of one of the episodes of Civilization. I think it was episode seven. And this is Kenneth Clark talking about the banality of wealthy people, the dullness. And he says, I wonder if a single thought that has helped forward the human spirit was ever conceived or written down in an enormous room. And that was the thought. This was As I was walking through Cannes, that was precisely the thought I was thinking. I was looking at all these enormous rooms and these huge sort of showrooms of tacky, or I think it's tacky anyway, yeah. brandy stuff. And I thought to myself, was anything ever conceived or written down in one of these places that actually advanced the, human, the human spirit? The answer is fucking no. <laughs> Okay, so that's my thing. But we're going to talk about transfers of wealth because I know something else is on your mind, which is the World Cup. You're upset about this. I, I am. You see, upset. I get upset about Fendi handbags, but you get upset, and I do too, about the World Cup in Qatar. Well, you see, you know me and football. I'm not a huge fan, but I always love the big international. Yeah, they're great. Know, yeah, great. absolutely. And and you talking just there about the banality of wealth. You know, the World Cup 
being bought by Qatar is the ultimate in banality of wealth and the buying of influence and the buying of... Uh, TV rights and all TV that stuff. TV rights yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, it's ruined football and the World Cup for me. And I don't think I'm going to be watching it this year. I think that FIFA are now quaking in their boots because John Davis <laughs> is not going to be sitting down in front of the World Cup. The McWilliams podcast is saying, saying no we are the, to the World We Cup. are the skibbering eagle of the early 21st century, Okay. But I think you're right. Look, it's, it's it's not just the money. It's 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 that we know they bribe their way to it. Yeah. We know that many hundreds of those Bangladeshi, Pakistani, and Indian workers died in awful conditions making the stadiums, right? We know that there's no real footballing culture. What we know it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a it's a cheapening of the spectacle completely. Yeah. And I agree with you. I agree with you. And, uh, you know, it's also the football, the World Cup in the middle of November. The World Cup's supposed to be in June. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's in June. But apart, but apart from that, what, what is amazing is that they've disrupted the whole footballing calendar for the rest of the world for this World Cup. Yes. That nobody really is, they, they, you know, their heart isn't in it in the same way as a World Cup in Brazil or, or in America in Argentina or, 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 or Holland or Germany yeah. or France or whatever. Or God forbid here. The great <laughs> Irish bid for the World maybe Cup. One day, maybe, <laughs> maybe one day. Maybe one day. But on that issue, John, we're now going to focus on something which is the transfer of wealth, power and influence to oil producers as a result of what's going on now. It's kind of a wake-up call for us. Yeah. And we're going to go to Paris and we're going to, because this week Biden went mad. He called a hostile act which was Saudi Arabia increased, well, OPEC, but basically Saudi Arabia, yeah. decided to cut oil production and therefore guarantee oil prices will be high throughout the winter all over the West. Yeah. And all the attendant problems. It was a big two fingers come, to the US. A big two fingers. But let's go to Neil Atkinson because he's in Paris. He's the former head of the oil department of the International Energy Agency, a guy with four decades experience you know, in oil and energy. And he's going to explain to us what the hell is going on. So let's go to Paris. Talk to Neil. Now, it's not always that we get the former head of oil at the International Energy Agency here on the podcast to discuss what is going down in energy markets, not just oil, but energy markets. Neil Atkinson is that man. Just to give us a little bit of background you will be aware in the last couple of days that OPEC announced that they would not only not increase production, uh, but they would decrease production. The White House reacted to this as saying OPEC, and in parenthesis read Saudi Arabia, has sided with the Kremlin, quote unquote, and this is a hostile act. So basically the rhetoric is significant, but... The man who's going to explain, put it all into context, give us a bit of perspective, take the heat out of the discussion, is Neil Atkinson. He's in Paris. Neil, how are you? And lovely to have you as a debutante on the podcast. I'm very well, thank you. And uh, I'm uh, much appreciative of the invitation to talk. It's been a few days since the this momentous meeting of the oil ministers in Vienna. And I think we now need perhaps a little bit of cool, cool heads to talk about this and give it a bit of perspective. So tell me, okay, so what was, not so much announced, but what was decided by OPEC? And why is this significant? And why have people's heads got all a bit uh, astray? Yeah, well, the, the, the basic fact is that uh, the ministers, uh, that's OPEC plus, uh, which includes Russia, and this is crucial in this discussion, they decided to reduce 
their production quotas by 2 million barrels per day effective in November. Now, the word quota is important here because they have not decided to cut production as such because, and I'm trying to keep this as simple as I can, OPEC has a current production quota, but many of the countries that are members of OPEC are incapable, for one reason or another, of producing to that quota. So their actual production is significantly below the quota. So to cut the quota does not necessarily mean a big cut in production, although there will be a cut in production, but nowhere near 2 million barrels a day. So I'm going to park this. This is very. I'm going to park the why they can't meet their quota. What has happened in the last few years, such that and people become a surprise to many people, myself included, that at a time of extreme energy demand, that the suppliers of energy across the board are unable to meet the quotas that they themselves have actually agreed to. So we're going to park that. We're going to come back to that. But tell us now about the impact because. People listening to the podcast, whether they're in Ireland or in the UK or in the States, are thinking, okay, what is going, we're going into this winter of discontent, this winter of very, very high energy prices, winter of high gas prices, winter not just of high gas prices, but maybe fears about gas supply and energy supply in itself. What is this going to mean for us? Well, the, the decision that was taken by OPEC relates to the oil market. Yes. And let's just get through that first. And then there's these wider energy issues, which we'll come on to, which are also very, very important. Now, up to about a week or so, 10 days or so ago, oil prices, were actually, crude oil prices, were actually falling. They started to slide back. And the reason for that is that there's a growing fear that the Western economies and elsewhere are heading into recession. You know, we're seeing interest rates rising very fast. We're seeing economic chaos in some countries, such as the UK. And the fear is that we are heading into a recession. That will impact demand for oil. The demand will not grow so fast or might even fall. So with the price signals actually heading downwards, the producers, Saudi Arabia and others, who have feelings too, they decided that uh, they do not want to run the risk of this demand fear turning into reality, prices sliding, because they need prices to be at a certain level, which meets their national needs. And the the feeling is that although they don't say explicitly what that price is, it's thought to be around $90 a barrel. So to go down significantly below that is not good news for them. So to put a signal to the market that we will, if necessary, cut supply to keep prices at a certain level That signal was very, very important to the market. Now, there are other factors at play, geopolitical, which we can come on to in a minute. But at its root lay the fears that lower demand was going to send prices spiraling down in the short term. Bad news for producers. So I like your idea that producers have feelings too, because you know, as energy consumers, we don't see that. We don't want to see that, actually. In fact, we don't want to see that. As far as we're concerned, I want to come on to the dynamics of this. But let's talk about the geopolitics of it. Because in normal times, if there is not a war going on in Ukraine, between UK and Russia, if there is not this sense of the world lining up on either side, in normal times, this is the normal run-of-the-mill of events. The OPEC guys say, the Saudis say, look, we needed $100 a barrel, plus or minus, because we've got our own fiscal objectives. But ultimately, ultimately, deals will be done. But we're not in normal times. So the Americans are calling this a hostile act, I presume, because they're saying, hold on a second, we are your sugar daddy in terms of military in the area. 
Okay, we are your sugar daddy in terms of your own status in the area. We are helping you against Iran. We are actually looking the other way at a variety of Saudi initiatives. So cut us a bit of slack. Well, yeah, but uh, the problem is that uh, although that sounds extremely sensible and rational, the problem is that the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, and particularly the relationship between MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and President Biden is terrible. Candidate Biden, in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, said explicitly that he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state because of the Khashoggi murder. And okay, fine, you can take the stand that that was a despicable act and take a, a moralistic foreign policy view based on that. The problem is, he's now President Biden, We've uh, seen a transformation of energy markets in recent years. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has added another layer of uncertainty. And quite frankly, the United States needs Saudi Arabia to play an important role in the oil market. And essentially, Biden has pissed off the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And that is a big factor in, in this uh, decision, building on what I said earlier on about the important factors of the fundamentals of the oil market, the personal relationships. I think this is something you feel quite strongly about. Personal relationships between uh, heads of state, heads of government, heads of big uh, companies, those dynamics are hugely important and they're a big factor here. Yeah, no, I've always felt, I've always felt that uh, one thing we always miss in history or we tend to overlook is that factor, is misunderstandings, is personal slights, etc. You might not even know that Ireland was declared a republic in 19. 49, because our Taoiseach went to Canada and thought he was slighted by the Canadian representative of the representative of the King of England and came home and said, <laughs> OK, screw it. We're going to declare a republic in the morning. And he actually sent a telegram to Dublin and that's how we declared it. Right. So it was actually one of those moments. And then suddenly history changes. So you're absolutely right. It is. That's John. But for listeners, that's John Costello. And uh, we'll come back to that. Costello actually in Canada got up one morning and said, have enough of this, we're a republic, enough of this dominion status, enough of this free state status. But let's come back to MBS and let's come back to Biden. So what you're saying is personal relationships disastrous. MBS's personal relationship with Putin? His personal relationship with Putin is a lot better. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't quite quite know how to describe it as, uh, you know, is it a warm embrace, a kiss on the mouth, the fall, whatever. It is much better because for the last six years or whatever it is now, led by Saudi Arabia, OPEC has got a formal treaty with Russia, a declaration of cooperation. And it's regarded as being hugely important for Saudi Arabia as part of its efforts as a member of OPEC to have as much control of the oil market as possible to have Russia in there as well. There are three big daddies amongst the oil producing world. You've got the United States. Russia and Saudi Arabia. And Russia and Saudi Arabia working together, along with the other big Middle Eastern producers, is a very, very powerful force. So that relationship remains very important for the purposes of market control, not, you know, global yeah. political domination, Saudis joining the Russians and invading somewhere. It's not about that. It's about uh, as we know, the Saudis are not pretty good in the battlefield. They're down in Yemen, uh, slapping best, around. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, with all those arms and all those goodies, let's just say an elite fighting unit, they are not. But let's Indeed. actually, let's let's flip it around and say, what do you think from, you know, your 
decades in the oil business, your decades in the energy business, what do you think the medium-term outlook is? Because the mainstream view is, look, there will be some sort of ceasefire and our winner-loser in the Russian-Ukraine war in time. That will send markets back to normal. There will be a sense that, hold on a second, that acute fear of taking the gas market will unravel, prices will come back down, inflation will come back down, this will all be transitory, and we'll deal with it. What's your sense as an oilman of what's going on? I think once a country, a very important country like Russia, loses its reputation for being a reliable supplier, that is very, very hard to get back. Really, really hard to get back. And quite frankly, unless you mentioned this possibility of a ceasefire or some kind of end to to the hostilities. Well, if Putin remains in power, then it is difficult to believe how the West, the European Union and its allies, can possibly go back to business as usual and trust this man ever again. And of course, if Putin is replaced, it depends who he's replaced by. Is he replaced by yet another fun-loving former secret policeman? Or is there some kind of a move to some kind of liberal democracy, which would be a different ballgame? But uh, I don't think we are in a position now where we can ever trust Russia again. And uh, the European Union, the United States, its, its allies, should continue their efforts to diversify their energy supplies away from Russia to the maximum extent possible. Now, the implication of that is what exactly? Oh, the implications are huge because it means that to all intents and purposes, without Russia playing a big role in all these markets, energy supplies will be tight because demand is continuing to rise. And it means that prices are likely to remain at more elevated levels than you would expect if Russia is playing its normal role in markets. We have to get used to this. So what you're saying is that oil prices and in and around $100 a barrel are the norm. And obviously, the knock-on effect on all energy of this kind of foundational energy source is going to be profound in terms of prices. Indeed so, you know, put, put, putting a date on a pri- and a price on a forecast, as you know, as an economist, yeah, yeah. is a foolish thing to do. But uh, it is difficult to see, other than by a return to normal in terms of supplies from Russia, how the markets will be anything other than tight for the foreseeable future, and thus that means elevated prices. Whether it's 100, 110, 100, nobody, you know, you can't say that. I mean, I, I can I'd struggle to tell you what the oil price will be at the end of next week, let alone. Well, that's very honest of you and very decent of you. But yeah. no, but no, no, but you're absolutely right. Now. But can we just draw the lens back a, a little bit and actually dredge your own personal experience in terms of looking at two or three, maybe even four decades of oil prices, energy prices? So you get the the 73 Yom Kippur spike, then you get the Iranian spike, then you get this collapse in energy prices in the 80s. And that goes into the 90s too. And energy prices don't really come back in until the noughties or even the even the teens, the 2010s, 11s, 12s. Give me the, give me this, the story, the sort of the big evolutionary story of energy prices over the last few decades. Well, one of the reasons that, uh, that prices remained low throughout the 80s and the 90s was that for a start, the, the big price spikes that you uh, alluded to led to huge initiatives in terms of energy efficiency, particularly in, in oil, in the Western economies. Obviously, we had two recessions, which clobbered demand as well. So we had a big improvement in energy efficiency. And you know, it's a little known fact that people talk about 
peak oil demand at some point in the future. Well, in the OECD countries, we had peak oil demand in 2005. That's it. The United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look it up. Peak oil demand in the Western economies was in 2005. Why? Because of efficiency improvements. So we were using less oil per unit of, uh, of GDP. So in the 80s and the 90s, the Saudis and the others were sitting on loads and loads of spare capacity because nobody wanted as much of their oil. The high prices of the Yom Kippur War and the Iranian Revolution led to massive investments in the North Sea, for example, and also in Alaska. And much later on, we, of course, saw the U.S. shale phenomenon. So there was lots of alternative production out there, and demand was sluggish. Fast forward to the early noughties, and then China was invented. Essentially, China started to grow big time. Its oil demand started to grow year on year by big numbers. Meanwhile, the Saudis and their chums had not been investing in more production capacity because nobody wanted their oil. So gradually, we saw a tightening of the balance between production and demand in oil markets. Very little spare capacity, which is the situation we've got today. And the, the foundation of uh, potentially tight oil markets for the next few years is based on this fact that we've had very little investment in recent years. We've still got demand rising for at least the next decade, and I personally think longer. So that is the flaw for higher oil prices. And, you know, I think we're going to have to get used to it. And then, Neil, all the while, we're talking about an extraordinary productivity flip in the 80s and 90s in the West, having been scarred by the experience of the 70s. And then in the 2000s, the productivity flip in energy isn't because of the fear of high prices, or it's allied to this, but it's actually climate change. So we have this extraordinary, extraordinary investment in the West in non-fossil fuel energy technology. What's this going to do? Well, yes, we have had an enormous amount of investment. That is certainly true. But how, how, how best to explain this? For at least the next decade and possibly beyond, there will be rising demand globally for oil. Not in the West because of the efficiency improvements and the investments in renewable electricity generation and so on and so on. But in places like China and India and Southeast Asia and Africa, which nobody ever talks about, but Africa is going to take off sooner or later, demand for liquid fuels is going to grow. Why? Because in transportation, passenger vehicles, trucking, aviation, shipping, there is as yet no mass scale alternative to liquid fuels. Yes, you see you know, big increases in sales of Teslas, but that's you know, rich people, or it's the low-hanging fruit, or people that have got company car schemes and subsidies of some kind. The mass market remains dominated for the, at least the next decade and beyond by the internal combustion engine. And we haven't even got on yet to, to consumer goods, petrochemicals, plastics, you know, as they said in the graduate film movie 50 odd years ago, you know, the future is plastics. The future is still plastics because people in India are getting richer. Other countries are getting richer, higher disposable incomes. They're buying stuff. Sure. Stuff means plastics, plastics everywhere. And that demand is a big cornerstone of the need for more oil over the next decade or so. So the problem we've got is that if you believe the demand is going to continue to grow, which I believe it will, we are faced with the fact that uh, particularly over the last six or seven years, 
since the oil prices crashed in 2015-16 that we have not seen enough investment in the upstream and indeed the downstream oil sector. Production capacity has not grown, which is why today it is very, very tight and restricted spare capacity only to Saudi Arabia and a couple of other people. So, you know, this lack of investment in recent years means the market is tight. Refining is also a tight market. We've not had uh, enough investment in recent years. And, you know, it, it's the, you know, you talk about climate change and the energy transition. Yes, I mean, I believe in the energy transition. Of course I do. It's necessary. We, we have got to do it. But the problem you've got is marrying the long-term goals of the energy transition with the requirements of the here and now. And this is the big problem that policymakers have got. So you've got the Biden administration, which came into office, you know, going on about uh, clean energy investments and all the rest of it. Absolutely right. No problem whatsoever with that. They're now, because of the crisis that we've got, the geopolitical crisis, doing a screeching handbrake turn and basically begging everybody to produce more oil, to refine more oil, while at the same time doing nothing to re-incentivize their own domestic industry. So it's this, it's this clash between the interests of the here and now and the, the long-term aspirations we have to decarbonize the energy economy. This is what I always call this, the Augustinian dilemma for those of us educated by Catholic priests, the make me virtuous, but just not yet, oh Lord. Well, being educated by Catholic priests wasn't a risk I was ever exposed to, so uh, well, <laughs> it's your word for it. Well, we'll, 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 we'll conform, form a self-help group and talk about trauma and all that, carry on later on. But, it's, but it is that idea, it's, it's procrastination, it's this idea, it's the human weakness for tomorrow is far away and let's just deal with right now. And of course, with the case of, of Biden, you have this added dilemma that on the one hand, his voters are a, a subset of his voters want climate change agenda accelerated, but the actual majority of Americans want to continue driving around in their big cars, as far as I can see. Indeed so. And it's not just uh, confined to America. I mean, I live, I live in Paris. And not that long ago, we had the, as you probably know, the Gilets Jaunes movement, which basically paralyzed lots of cities every weekend with massive demonstrations. The root of that movement, or the straw that broke a camel's back, was an increase in the taxes on gasoline and diesel, which, you know, the regular mom and pop out there, you know, running their little diesel car or little gasoline car, whatever it is, or maybe they have a small business with a van, they were outraged by this. And, and in fact, the increase in taxes was actually quite modest. It was very modest, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah, very yeah, modest. I don't remember the exact number. No, I don't think, I think Macron or anybody saw this coming because Macron was basically, you know, in, 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 his, in his Jupiter phase, early doors, exactly. and he, was, he could do anything. And he was completely blindsided by this. But this is where I come back to is the sensitivity of European and American democracy to energy prices. This is what I want to focus on in the end. Because that's what you're talking about. Well, of course it is, because ultimately it's people sitting in their houses, sitting in their cars, worried about what they perceive to be very, very high prices. And, you know, literally, do they have enough money to pay the, uh, the fuel bill at the end of the week or at the end of the month? And this is a situation we're getting to because, you know, as you will know more about this than I do, but real incomes in many Western countries have stagnated in, over the last two or three decades People are under pressure. Prices are rising. Housing, the cost of housing is rising, whether it be ownership or, or rental. The cost of fuel is, is rising. People feel under pressure. 
And people like that are not looking 15 years into the future for the fulfillment of the Paris Climate Agreement. They're looking about paying their bills at the end of this week or the end of next month. And the, the politicians have to ride the, the, these two horses. But because we live in democracies and people have votes, there are elections in America in a few weeks. There are elections in pretty well every country you can think of in the next two to three years. The politicians have to address those concerns. And in the United Kingdom, I'm not so familiar with the situation in Ireland, but and certainly here in France as well, the governments have decided to pour tens of billions of dollars, pounds, euros, they're almost exactly the same thing these days, yep. into supporting All equal to one at this stage. Well, and uh, if you're doing that, you know, those are resources which are not available for governments to play their part in stimulating clean energy. And this is a really, really tough phase we're in now. We're in, a, we're in an energy security emergency because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine at a time when we're seeing interest rates rising, risk of recession, and governments are not taking their eye off the ball as far as climate change is concerned, but inevitably they're focusing on the here and now in their backyard. I think that's a pretty comprehensive summation of the dilemma, the conundrum, because what we're talking about is a conundrum. And, you know, when, when real politics, or let's say when aspirational politics crashes into the reality of people's day-to-day -day lives, that's when you have these dilemmas. But to come back just finally to the Middle East, because you can argue that in the 70s, after the Yom Kippur War, the Europeans said, okay, those, uh, those Middle Eastern geezers, they're not really secure. They're kind of, they, 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 were, they were the Russia of the time. You know, they, suddenly you had this assumption that this is going to be a, a stable part of the world. Then it becomes profoundly unstable. And the Europeans say, well, look, the Russians, the Soviets, yeah, maybe they're a better partner. And gradually you get us pivoting towards them as our supply. Do you see something like that happening now? Because obviously you said the Russians will, will be what the Middle Easterners were in the 70s. And we're going to have to pivot to Nigeria, to Venezuela, to these other areas. Well, I think uh, good luck pivoting to Nigeria or Venezuela. I, I worked for the state oil company of Venezuela for 19 years, and I know a lot about the country, and it's a ruin, so forget it. Uh, and Nigeria, is uh, its industry is dying on its feet because of incompetence, because of corruption, so forget that. The problem we have got is that as long as our demand for oil and indeed other energy sources is growing, fossil fuel energy is growing, we will need the Middle East. And we need stability in the Middle East, and we need a stable Saudi Arabia. Whether we like it or not, we need a stable Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Qatar and the others. We need them. Russia is a very, very special case, but on the assumption that some kind of ending to this conflict is, is, is found in the next uh, three or four years, then Russia will have to be part of that agreement as well. We cannot do without these countries supplying us with energy for a long time to come. There are no other big players out there that we don't know about. You know, you can look at Venezuela, you can look at Iran. You know, Iran is under sanctions. Venezuela is under sanctions. Even if sanctions were eased on those two countries tomorrow, and certainly in the case of Venezuela, it would take a decade before they got back to being a big, big producer. And Iran, well, Iran is always a complicated situation. But, you know, one of the Saudi concerns about Iran is that the Iran has had rising influence in the whole of the region, partly due to the fall of Saddam Hussein. Precisely. 
I mean, the interesting thing is Iran won the Iraq war. Indeed so. And uh, Iran's influence in Iraq and elsewhere has only risen since the demise of Saddam Hussein. And uh, the Saudis don't like that, of course, needless to say. But, uh, you know, the Saudis remain the unavoidable family member, if you like, distant cousin or whatever, that is always there whether you like them or not, and you just have to get on with them. Okay. On that, it's like a bad wedding. The uncle arrives, but he's still paying the bill for somebody, and so he's got to be fated. Indeed. That's a good way of putting it. Neil, listen, great to talk to you. Now that your uh, podcast virginity of the Dave McWinnies podcast has been robbed and taken, we'll have you back on. You're a member of the gang. Anytime. Great stuff, Neil. Listen, thanks so much for that. Excellent stuff. Talk soon. Take care. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, this whole new world order thing, like that move by OPEC plus yeah. was, as we were saying earlier, was a big two fingers, not just to America, but to the West as well. But, you know, this growing divide between the West and the rest is getting more and more stark. It is. And a little bit precarious for, for everybody. But what is interesting, though, when he was talking about oil is going to be here for the next decade at least. Decades, I think Decades. Saying, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So you have liquid fuel, you need it for everything. But it's that, that whole thing of, you know, there's new markets in, in Africa or growing markets in Africa, you know, India, China. You know, the West isn't as crucial to the oil market. I mean, we are not the centre of the world. 
No, we're not. I mean, basically, oil, you know, I've always said energy isn't the cost of living. It's the cost of life. Yeah. So everything's about energy. The reason we eat food is about energy. Everything starts with energy. And if the cost of energy is going up, it means the cost of life is going up. It's, it's interesting you talk about India. I've been to India a couple of times. One of the most fascinating things in India, in those big, big cities, but the things strike you. There's lots of things striking about India. A lot for, for mm. some people, it's cows on the streets or whatever, mm. you know. And you've been to India as well. But yeah, yeah. what really struck me was thousands of little Bunsen burners. Right, you know the chai wallets, right? Yeah, the guys, that's right. right? Yeah, the guys who sell burning. the tea. So yeah. you're in, you're in, you're in a tuk tuk, and you're going on, and it's it's early morning. The sun is rising, so it's just dawn. Okay, yeah. and the whole of the city is coming to life, and it's chaos, and the smells, and the filth, and the heat. But I always remember these thousands of little Bunsen burners, and they're burning the chai wallets. They're burning the hot milk for yeah. the tea, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just forget that that even. That is going on all the time. There's absolutely no genuflection to climate change. There's no sense of anything other than the immediate need of that minute. Mm. This is, I think, what, what Neil is saying, is that you have humanity understanding in the West that climate change demands that we change profoundly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the way in which we provide energy. But hundreds of millions, billions of people think Precisely. of something completely different. And their argument is very much, you guys had your time in the sun. You guys have all your goodies. It's now our time. And whether you like it or not, we're still going to burn fuel. And that's what he's saying. 